on that, this morning we are continuing our series looking at what it means to be human. Our main text is going to begin at Genesis 2, verse 18. Let's hear together God's word. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's ask the Lord to work through the word this morning. Heavenly Father, you are our creator. You know every aspect, body and soul, of who we are, of what we need. And you know your design for our lives, how they are to dovetail with a multitude of others. And we ask that through your gracious working by the Holy Spirit this morning, you would not only receive from us more adoration, appreciation, and glory, but that you would also enable us more and more to fulfill the part that you have appointed to us in the world, whether we be young children at this time or in the middle of our lives or at the sunset. Lord, you are good, and we ask you to do these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Whoever is unable to live in society or to provide entirely for themselves, is either a beast or a god. Those are not my words. Those are the words of the 4th century philosopher Aristotle in his work Politics, where he was expressing his opinion, his belief, was that it is in human nature to want and to need to have other people that form a society and for you to be a part of that. Anyone who doesn't have that need or doesn't want it at all, there is something unnatural about them. That was his view, fourth century philosopher. Well, compare that with the 20th century French playwright, Jean-Paul Sartre, who said famously in one of his plays through one of his characters, hell is other people. Hell is other people. Now, he did not mean, it's often misunderstood quote, he did not mean that every other person is as hellish as they could possibly be. He himself had friends. But what he meant was that it's impossible for an individual to experience perfect peace in society because at every moment you are aware that other people are critical or judgmental towards you and that shapes your own self-perception. And so you just can't be fully at peace as long as there are other people who don't approve of you and the reality is everyone is not going to approve of you. Even the people you love absolutely the most, they do not approve of you fully. If you want, get married or have a long friendship, you'll find out even the best of friends 
have differences. And so he said hell is other people desiring, yearning for that kind of heavenly communion and discovering I can never have it. What about today? Some experts have described the past 30 years as a social recession. A social recession. According to the most recent Gallup poll between 1991 and 2021, so 30 years, the number of people who identify themselves as having 10 or more close friends that they describe as people they can count on for anything and tell anything has dropped from 31% to 13% in America. And on the other hand, the number of people who say that they do not have a single friend has risen from 3% 30 years ago up to 12%. To put that differently, greater than 1 in 10 Americans probably has no close friends. Or more than 30 million people in this land. No close friends. And some of those people, it's very much intentional. Just this past week, a major journal of psychology published an article called Modern Hermits. And in that article, they stated that there is a global increase, not just in America, but a global increase of what they call extreme social withdrawal, where people, by design, and you have perhaps known such people, or maybe this is something you feel inclined towards, they've been so hurt or they've been so broken by life in this world that at every step possible, if they can be removed, be remote, they are. They play their games at home, or they watch their TV, or they're on the internet, they have everything delivered to their home, and if they must go out to work, they will, but on the other hand, if they can work from home, that's one less interaction with another person, and they feel happiest that way. Is that natural? Is that human? How do you incline? And how are you assisting those who struggle to find their place in the world? What we're going to see this morning, beginning at Genesis, especially focusing in Genesis, is that when God created human beings from the beginning, he designed individuals, these individual image bearers of his character, of his way, to find their ultimate purpose, their ultimate satisfaction, by a right relationship, not only with God, but with other human image bearers. Your ultimate purpose and satisfaction cannot be realized in a solitary way. To think otherwise is to cease, in some sense, to be fully human. Now, of course, sin has wrecked the way that we relate together, but the good news of the gospel, as we're going to look at in some particular ways, is that in Christ, God has begun to reconstitute human community. And when we live together on the basis of the gospel, on the basis of grace and the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit, it is possible in this life to experience a foretaste of that kingdom. Partial, incomplete, but real. It's distinguished from the world. And even then, as you struggle at times, even in the Christian community, you have the solid hope, and the Lord is calling you to rejoice. He has gone to prepare a place for us. Our community then will be perfect. That is great hope and something that we should boast in, even as the world collapses upon itself socially at different times. The Lord has given us something to rejoice in that we must share with others. Now, as we consider this subject, we're going to do so looking at it under two main ideas. And I'll announce each of those as we come to them. And then we'll conclude by looking at a few very particular applications of this. So two main ideas and then some application. 
Up to this point, look with me in your Bible, up to this point in Genesis, you may or may not be familiar. In this creation story, God has pronounced everything that he made good. He makes some birds, he says, good. He makes the trees, good. He makes the sky and the stars and the clouds, and good, good, good. And then in verse 18, we encounter the first not good in the Bible. And this is before the fall into sin. It's important to bear in mind that the word good here is not limited to a moral category, as though God made Adam sinful. When God says something is not good here, understand the Hebrew word good, which is broad in meaning just like our English word good, can also mean satisfactory, pleasant, suitable. And here we read in verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. Now, did God mess up in making only one at first? By no means. When God works in time, he does so in ways that help us as his image bearers, as his worshipers, to perceive lessons. And by beginning as he did, he was teaching many things, and one of those things was to help us to perceive the greater goodness of there being more than one image bearer. And the greater goodness of Adam having a suitable counterpart. And so this is the first and perhaps the biggest idea that we encounter in Genesis here is that from the very beginning, there was a greater good for individuals. That has to be said in our backdrop of American rugged individualism. There is something that many of us do admire about the kind of person, be they man or woman, who can go out into the mountains, up into the Rockies, kill a bear, don its skin, live alone for 20 years. There's something about that which is attractive to many people. But if that was that person's life and then he or she dies, it was a faulted life. God, from the beginning, ordained a greater good that can only be realized by a right relationship with other human beings. Only be realized by a right relationship Now, I do want to begin by dispelling a common misunderstanding about this verse. Look at me again at verse 18. It is not good that the man should be alone. There's a common misunderstanding about this verse where it's taken as an absolute statement concerning the inferiority of marital singleness, where it is taken as always true for all people that it is inferior to be single compared to having a spouse. And I've observed this, and maybe you've observed this, you know, a group of people hanging around, and maybe they're all married, they're at the table, and one of them brings up, oh, how's so-and-so doing? And then somebody else says, oh, you know, still single. And somebody else then says, it's not good for the man to be alone. And there's a general, perhaps, truth in that. But is that what this verse is talking about? As if every person who chooses not to marry has taken the lower path, the worst path. Not at all. Now, perhaps prior to the fall, that was true. But we live in a world after the fall, and after the fall into sin and all the wreckage that has come in body and society and so forth, I submit to you that there are circumstances where it is not only legitimate, but laudable and wise for a person to choose to remain single, whether that be for a time or for the rest of their lives. Now, where am I getting this from? Just a few examples. One, 
Take Proverbs 21, verse 19, and there are other verses like this in the Bible, where it says that it is better to dwell in the wilderness. Elsewhere it says it's better to dwell on the corner of a rooftop than to live inside with a contentious spouse. Now, I'm not telling you that if your spouse is contentious, you should go out into the wilderness. That's not the point. But prior to marriage, if you are aware that there is a person with such a deep character fault that it will lead to constant fighting and bitterness in the home, it may be very wise for you to say, I'm not moving forward with this relationship towards marriage. I'm going to remain single, whether that be for a while or indefinitely. And other circumstances like that could be multiplied. Take the Apostle Paul. The Bible tells us that he chose to remain single. From many different vantages, he could probably easily in that day and time have acquired a wife. And I say acquired because it would have very much been arrangeable in the first century for him to say, I want a wife, let's get me one. And it would have happened. But he not only chose that, but he recommended it to other people at times. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8. Hear what he advises. 1 Corinthians 7. Now, to the unmarried and the widows, I say, and remember, it wasn't uncommon for a person to become widowed fairly young. 20s, 30s, 40s. A lot of health things. I can say from experience there are things I've had. You've probably had things if you've ever had appendicitis in your 20s or something like that. You wouldn't be here. Widowhood could begin quite early and people would get remarried. He says, now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good. There's that word again. It is good for them to stay unmarried. I thought it was not good to be alone. Well, maybe alone doesn't always mean married. Maybe that's not the point of Genesis 2 verse 18. He says, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. We aren't sure what the crisis was. People speculate that it could be related to famine and having to care for your spouse. That it could be related to employment issues. Now that they are Christians, people, pagans, don't want them to work for them. It could be persecution. We don't know for sure. But there are crises which make it laudable not to marry. He says, are you pledged to a woman? Don't seek to be released. You you don't have to break her heart. You're already in this. Are you free from such a commitment? Don't look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. Perhaps Paul was married at an earlier stage of his life and he knew by experience, or perhaps he just opened his eyes and looked around. To be married introduces many, many challenges. What about Jesus himself? He chose celibacy. And so clearly it's not sinful to choose not to marry. Matthew chapter 19, in fact, he praises those who, quote, choose not to marry for the sake of the kingdom. There are some particular callings in kingdom work that are significantly easier to do when you don't have the responsibility of caring for a spouse. It's true for both, say, men and women who are missionaries in places that are very dangerous. They are freed for that work. Jesus praises people who choose to be alone because they're not alone, as we're going to see. They have a community. They have the communion of saints, and they have others. So verse 18 is not, I trust it's very clear now, not an absolute statement about the inferiority of singleness. What then is God saying in this verse? What is he saying when in some sense it's not good for the man to be alone? 
I believe you should understand this on two levels. Two levels. First, understand it as having been spoken particularly to Adam and Eve, that it was not good for Adam to be without a partner suitable to the calling that he had. And he had a particular calling. In general ways, it applies to all humanity, but it applied particularly to him. Look with me back at chapter 1, Genesis 1, verse 28. You see, both the man and the woman receive a call together. And God blessed them, plural. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Adam, by virtue of how God had formed him, could not do that alone. It was not good relative to that particular calling for him to be without someone who was a suitable procreative partner. That doesn't mean it exhausts the goodness of having the woman. But for each of them, they needed somebody. That calling that he had particularly does not hang upon all persons particularly. Again, or else Jesus was sinning by not getting married and having kids. Be fruitful and multiply is not a mandate hanging on you as an individual after the fall in the way that it was upon Adam. There is a general mandate such that when nations or humanity at large, if they shirk the responsibility collectively to have children, there will be consequences. God has called us as a people. But individually, there are all kinds of legitimate reasons that stand in the way. Then generally, how should this be taken? I believe in light of the whole counsel of God, it is not good for mankind to be alone. It's not good for individuals to be without others who have a calling to be interdependent with them. What would I base this on? Many things. But look at me at verse 24 of chapter 2. Look at the creational pattern for the family. It says in verse 24, A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. The way that it's set up, the paradigm from creation, I'm not saying it always works this way in our fallen state, but the paradigm from the beginning was not one where there were ever people emancipated from family relationship, that they go off by themselves, do their own thing. They at the point when they're ready to marry, leave father and mother and form a new family unit, had this continued and they spread into the world, everyone belongs by various extensions to one universal family. And then look at the scope of the original mandate, verse 28 of chapter 1, to fill the earth and subdue it. That is not something Adam and Eve could do alone, nor any one of their heirs. The subduing it involves the right use, the stewardship of every kind of created thing. This is global. This is worldwide cooperation. And for that reason, to be human is to be created in such a way that you can only realize the satisfaction and the purpose that God has for you by having a right relationship with other image bearers. There was never meant to be one, but kind of like taking one mirror and carefully breaking it up and making a mosaic of all those shards, the image of God is reflected in the many, not simply in the one, in the many of us together. Now, that only happens as we live together according to God's will. Let me ask you, if somebody asks you for a summary of God's will, what is that? You can go to a number of passages. But what is God's will relative to our community? Whether that be in your family, in this church life, in your friend groups, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, 
describes the essence of God's will as, quote, love from a pure heart. As it says elsewhere in the New Testament, love one another with sincerity. God has called his people to love, and the whole of the law is to show concern both for what is good in God's eyes and what is truly beneficial to others. Now contrast that with the nature and the consequences of sin for a moment. If God's will is love, then sin is a disregard for the good of others. Whether that other be God, whether that other be yourself, whether that be other people that you're connected to, sin is a disregard for others. And there is never a sin that doesn't touch others. Even if no one knows about particular sins that you're committing, they're affecting others because they're changing you. And then you go out into that world with that change, with that corrupted version of yourself, less loving, less like Christ. Your sins, no matter how secret, are public because you are a public person. You affect others. Sin by its very nature, being contrary to the will and purpose of God, skews towards separation of people. And that's been the case since the very beginning. Take Adam and Eve. It tells us in our passage that before sin, in verse 25, they were naked and not ashamed. And then immediately after their fall, there's a a literal barrier between them. They can't stand to be seen by God or to be seen by one another. There's a lack of trust. There's suspicion. And that has reflected itself in how many marriages throughout all of history. It's reflected with Cain and Abel in one of the very next stories where the jealousy of a brother and the arrogance of a brother leads the parents to lose both children. And whether or not you have siblings who have literally murdered other siblings, the same plays out today. The rate of family members being cut off and separated or regarding themselves as disowning their family is higher than it's ever been since it's being recorded. Most of us probably have family relationships where we simply will not talk with other people. But what does that say about us and what does it say about sin? Genesis 6 in Noah's day, within generations, the world is filled with violence. It's not just that, you know, they like each other but they don't like God. Sin, by its nature, separates us from others. And then ultimately, I'll be frank with you because I will not be your minister if I'm not. The Bible is very candid about the end of those who live in unrepentance, who live for themselves, for their sin, without faith in Christ. What is the end of that? Jesus, more than any other figure in the whole Bible, speaks about the literal character of hell. And he describes it in various ways that are hard to comprehend, just as our heavenly life is hard to comprehend. But he describes it as outer darkness, being cast away, separated from mutual expressions of love and comfort. Have you ever been alone in a big room? And I imagine hell is like that. Whether or not you are aware of other people with you, there's no community. That is the direction sin skews. That is the direction your sin is skewing if it is not repented constantly. And the Bible calls us to put to death the old man, to put to death the works of the flesh. This is the warning about it. Now, I want to set that greater good that we've just seen in the light, however, of the gospel, because the purpose of the sermon is not to make you feel terrible. It's necessary for us to grow to hate sin. If you're actually going to fight it, you have to truly hate it. 
but set that greater good that we are called to in the light of the gospel. In Christ, what has God begun to do? He has not simply come up with a plan to help you realize yourself spiritually in some way so that you can, you know, vacate your responsibilities and relationships with people. The mission that Jesus had when he came into the world was not to give people some kind of spiritual epiphany, like, say, in Buddhism, where the goal is to shed personal consciousness. That's the goal in Buddhism and many other belief systems. To be removed from responsibility to others, to be taken out and just made one with the universe. Jesus' mission is described in Matthew 121 as, quote, he came to save his people. And the word people there should be understood as a plurality in unity. He didn't come to save people. He came to save his people. See the difference? A united plurality. 1 Peter 2 verse 9 says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. How much mercy? Not just the fact that he forgives sins, but the fact that he is joining you to a people whom no man can number, of every tribe and tongue and nation. What a balm that is for times when you feel that your relationships are so fractured to know that they will be healed. When Jesus says, I go to make a place for you, he's not just talking about some fancy box to live in with your body. The place is participation in the kingdom. And the kingdom is a people. The city is a group of citizens. Revelation chapter 7, when it talks about there being a great multitude, says that they stood before the throne and before the Lamb. And that word lamb there is significant because it bears witness to how Christ is achieving this. How do you have this hope of community? How do you have the hope that even by the Spirit, things can be better in the coming year than they've been for you? First, what Christ has come to do is to remove the guilt and to establish reconciliation on the basis of his death for you. But not only his death, even his whole life of obedience. What was he doing in the wilderness when he was alone for 40 days? He was suffering in lonesome temptation in order that he might offer his righteousness for you. And his whole life he related to everyone in precisely the right way. And through faith, the promise of the gospel is his right relationships with all is counted to you for all your antisocial faults and failures. I think back to... You know, we all have a ton. I think there's one that kind of haunts me. When I was in seventh grade, there was a boy. I won't even say his name in case internet sleuths want to go by a first name. There was a boy. And he would regularly come to school with hair all messed up and dirty gray sweats. He wore this every day. And looking back as now nearly 40, I'm pretty sure that that's what was afforded to him by his parents. That's how he was being raised. He was very kind to everybody. And I remember finding, as I was rummaging through some costumes that we had in our house, finding a wig that was all messed up and thinking, I should wear this to school and wear gray sweat clothes to school. And I just thought it'd be funny. And it led to people mocking that kid. And I still look back and go, why did I do that? And thankfully, you know, I reached out to him via the internet when we were in our 20s. And he said, I don't even remember that. I'm very grateful. 
But Christ, among all the foolish things we've done, Christ was dying for that sin too. Christ was dying for all of the antisocial sins of his people. Because God came not just to reconcile us to God according to his essence, but to God according to his incarnation. The greater good of having a counterpart is realized ultimately in you being brought together not simply with God like a nebulous blob, but in the person of Jesus Christ wearing our flesh, our humanity. Jesus says in John 17 verse 10, the night before he's crucified, Father, I want those that you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory he's talking about is the glory of his resurrected form. He wants you there with him. He wants others there with him. Other sheep I have, they will come because I shall draw them. He is the good shepherd. From the beginning, God's willingness has been to draw people to himself. But how does he do it? Not just by taking away our guilt, but by sending forth his Holy Spirit. Sending forth the Holy Spirit to change our hearts. You are, if you are in Jesus Christ, you are being changed. You are going from glory to glory. You are putting on the new man. And that changes how you relate to other people. And if there's not a change, you are not in Jesus Christ. John chapter 17, verse 22, Jesus there again praying, says, Father, the glory that you've given to me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. That they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. That's his prayer, and Jesus doesn't fail in his prayers. He desires us to be together, but how does he do it? I in them, by his spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 11, all these believers are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Individually, he gives you gifts, but it's for an interdependent purpose. You don't have anything God has given you that he has not given you for others. Nothing is simply your own. Whatever you have, you have unto the benefit of the body. And so with whatever time we have, I want to bring it back to the application. And I want to circle with you back to what that playwright said. Hell is other people. I think he had a point. To a point. There is something hellish about living with people and knowing that they will always be critical and judgmental towards you. And that is what you will get if you live in a world without grace in Jesus Christ. What's offered in the gospel is not you do 99% and God does one, or God does 99 and you do one. What's offered in the gospel is 100% God says, I am willing to give you salvation. Take me up on the promise. Believe on me and you'll be saved. But if you will not receive and you will not repent and you have no regard to demonstrate the power of the age to come, then you will be separated. And I appeal to you. I appeal to you. We, the people of God, want to see you there. Believe. There is no special prayer you must pray. Cast yourself on the grace of Christ. Believe that he will forgive you. And then begin in faith to live a new life. I encourage you all, savor the promise again this week. 
that Christ is bringing about this community. Adam and Eve were called to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. They failed in that mandate. The mandate has been superseded by the mission. The mission is going to all the world. And Christ, with his bride, his Eve, as it were, is bringing about all of these new births that will never die. He will not fail, and you've been made a part of that. And if that's the case, then heed his call and fully engage as imagers this responsibility you have towards community. What does it say in 1 Thessalonians 4.9? It says, concerning brotherly love, you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. But now we urge you, brothers, do this more and more. What does more and more look like for you? What does it look like for you in the next month? Concrete plans, intentionality. What does it look like for you in the remainder of this year? What does this look like? And I'm not telling you because I'm certain in your case, we all have different callings, gifts, abilities, resources. But I think about this from time to time based on conversations I've had and being here for seven or eight years. There are people who have attended here for a long time and they still feel like they are having a hard time forming deep friendships. It goes both ways. You got to give to get typically with people. You got to spend time together. But do you have space in your life to bring in people who are not like you? Do you form and curate your relationships, not on Jesus Christ as the central link that bonds us together, but on other things that you allow to become the dominant determination in who you spend your time with? Whether that be having more or less the same income, because that can definitely be a difference in how you spend time with people. But as the scripture says, let those who are of high estate associate with those of low estate. Is it differences in race and culture? There's therefore now no Jew nor Gentile. All are one in Christ. Christ is all in all. Is it secondary positions on social and political concerns? Oh, don't bring those things up, Pastor. We'll we'll have a problem. I'm not saying don't have strong convictions. I'm saying you have them in a way that is subjected to the centrality of union with Christ that you share with your brothers and sisters who are genuine believers. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Paul is not saying in 1 Corinthians 1 that you can't have differences of opinion on secondary matters. He's saying keep the main thing the main thing. Don't speak wickedly about one another, whether in person, behind backs, online, these brothers and sisters that you have in Jesus Christ, you are the premier representation of the presence of God on this planet and in this universe. He gave you a holy mouth. And we use it to tear people down and not to build up the city of God. When people come into this church, I hope that they see and they feel and they sense this is a place of deep, deep love. And that can never be the case for you if you continue to dwell and to fixate on all of the secondary things instead of the everlasting place you have in Jesus Christ. And the true fact that the Holy Spirit dwells in believers. If we do this, hear Jesus' words, John 13, 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have such love for one another. 
May God grant us that. Let's pray. Our Lord, we yearn for that age, or perhaps we do not. We ask that your Holy Spirit would transform us mercifully from glory to glory, that we would yearn to see the outsider brought in, the divisions within our own homes and families healed, that you would help us to know how to fulfill our natural responsibilities in community, as well as our supernatural responsibilities. All of these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.